This morning, our text is gonna be found in Exodus chapter 20. We're gonna be looking at verses one through 17 and 22 through 25. Uh, just a quick word about this. This text contains God's 10 commandments, also known as the law. Uh, these phrases are used interchangeably. Um, but we're gonna be taking a, more of a 30,000 foot approach to this instead of going through each one of these. Not that it's not important. I wish we could, but we would just be here for a very long time. So if you're interested in learning more uh, particular information about this, please come see me uh, after the service or email me throughout the week and I can give you some resources because uh, this is fascinating. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and dive right in. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And skip down to 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have taught with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar out of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness not, may not be exposed on it. Huddled in fear, crowded together, scared, was where the American Society of Landscape Architects found a group of children when they were running an experiment to see how children would react in a playground without a fence. So what they did was they took these children, they had this playground that was in proximity to a, a busy road. They were not near it, but they could see the road, see the cars, and they built this play structure. And what they found was that the children stayed huddled underneath uh, the play structure out of absolute fear. They all stayed together. None of the children were really playing with anything, and they felt unsafe there. What they noticed was as soon as they put up a fence around the perimeter of this playground, the children then started to play freely. 
They found safety with the fences. They felt secured with that fence there and allowed them to play at a greater level. Here's what a researcher wrote. The overwhelming conclusion was that with a given limitation, children felt safer to explore a playground. With the boundary, in this case the fence, the children felt at ease to explore the space. In other words, fences brought freedom. Fences brought freedom. And this is, in essence, what God's law does for those who trust in Jesus. God's holy laws are boundaries and structures that bring our freedom to life. And it helps us to ask this question, what does this freedom look like? What does true freedom look like from God's law? We'll answer that in two ways. God's laws frees us to live in relationship with God and God's laws frees us to live in relationship with each other. So let's look how God's laws allow us to live in relationship with him. We see this in verses one through 11, and it's in this section where we find out how God's people are to do more than just know him. They are to intimately know him, like children to their father. They are to, they're learning how to have an intimate relationship. And God is laying out to know him intimately is to worship him as he tells us to. You'll notice well before he even goes into these first four laws, what does God do? If you look at the text, you'll notice that God gives them a quick history lesson to remind them who is in fact giving these laws. God is reminding them that he has loved them well before he gives them the law. He recalls to them how he's loved them and he's redeemed them out of slavery. This is the backdrop for where these laws come. So after God's reminding them of their rescue from slavery, God then gives the first four of these 10 commandments. And these first four commandments teach Israel how to live in relationship with God. And you'll hear this um, sometimes called the vertical dimension of the law. You'll hear sometimes pastors or scholars say that this is the vertical dimension. This is the up and down. This is you and God. This is us and God, how we live together. So how does God begin there? Think about it. He's got 10 commandments to give. Where would you expect God to start? Well, the first commandment is that Israel would have no other gods before them, and why in the world would you start there? Of all places to start, why there? What God is teaching about himself is that he doesn't have a rival. There are no other gods before him. He is the only God of all creation, and he is demanding explicit loyalty and faithfulness from his people. That's his right as God. That's his right as creator, creating all of us. But an Israelite hearing this would have been floored. They would have been shocked. Think about their lives for 400 years. They were deeply embedded into Egyptian culture where they had hundreds of false gods. And these false gods were made into all these little carved wood and metal and gold images. And they thought that these gods would embody this little figurine. There were hundreds of gods, everything from uh, agriculture to sex to the afterlife, 
like our phones that have an app for everything, they had a God for everything in life there, for all situations. God is saying that all of these gods are worthless frauds. And God is saying you'll not only worship him and him alone, but he even goes so far to say that he wants all of these gods removed from our minds as well. This is why we see the second commandment is not to create an image, not just externally, but internally in our minds. You see, nations surrounding Israel regularly had conceptions of who they thought God was and wrote about it and created things sharing what they thought God was. But because of sin, our fallen minds will always misrepresent who God is. Think about what a carved image represents. Think about what these uh, little figurines represent, this immobile, in, uh, inanimate object that is at one place at one time, not emotionally present, unable to protect, unable to provide, and also created and manipulated by humans. You see, any carved or imagination of God of any sort will always fail in showing who God has revealed himself to be through his divinely revealed word or through instructions. So think about this. Uh, if you've ever built Ikea furniture, which is incredibly frustrating and incredibly painful, you would never attempt to build something from Ikea without first looking at the instructions, right? What would you do if you opened up the box with all those thousands of pieces and you just decided, I'm just gonna start sticking parts wherever I think the parts would go? What would you be left with? You'd be left with this uh, kind of a mess that's unsightly to look at, unstable to sit on, and your fingers would be busted up because they give you that little tool that never really works. Why? Sorry. So if you wouldn't build Ikea furniture apart from its instructions, why would you try to create a God in your mind or in your life apart from his divinely revealed instructions? Doing so will inevitably lead to this hideous and unstable God that provides no help and no life. So as God moves from how we are to know him and to worship him in our minds, he moves into our speech and the way that we interact in life through our rhythms of work and rest because the way that we speak and the way that we work and the way that we rest all reflects what we believe God is and how he's revealed himself to us. Now, when you take all of these four commandments and put them together, what is God teaching us about himself? What God is teaching us is that he wants his people to be completely consumed with his goodness and glory. God wants his people to be consumed with who he is. Jesus sums these four laws up in Matthew 22 he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. And the expectation here in Exodus is that we do this perfectly 
24-7 without being consumed with any other gods or worshiping anything else besides God. Sadly, because of sin, we do worship things besides God. Sadly, because of sin, we are consumed with other things. We worship things less than God. And for years, I sat in churches and I would hear these claims and I would say, no, I don't worship anything. I don't even believe there's a God. I don't believe that there's worship. This is ridiculous. I don't worship anything. Indulge me for a moment and see what it looks like to worship the God of reputation. Let's see what it looks like to worship the God of your own image. Now, you may not check off every box here, but we've all experienced this from time to time in our lives and in others. A telltale sign that you worship the God of reputation is that every chance you get, you have the ability uh, to sink in and tell somebody something great about yourself. It's the, it's the classic one-upper, right? It's like, hey, how was your weekend? Well, great, I went swimming uh, in the pool, had a great time with the family. Oh, you went swimming, that's great. That reminds me of the time that I went swimming in Madagascar with sharks with the president of Africa. It was wonderful. I'm like, oh, okay, uh, that sounds really cool. It's kind of like CrossFitters and vegans. I just can't help but tell you that they are vegan and CrossFitters. And I love vegans and CrossFitters but you very clearly know who they are. What else does it look like to worship the God of reputation? Your goal is to have people think the world of you. Your goal is to have people leave your interactions with you and be like, man, that person is something. Or if you mess up inside of a relationship, it's always someone else's fault. Every relationship you've been in, every job, something has always hurt you. You are always the victim. You never have any responsibility in any of the broken relationships around you. And if you mess up so bad that you're caught red-handed, you hit them with one of these apologies. I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry you took it that way. That's the worst apology ever. I would rather someone just curse at me than give me that apology. What happens when you're worshiping at the God of self or the God of reputation, whenever you start to get too close to people, people start to see the real you. People start to see the cracks or the paper mache image that you've created of yourself that's paper thin. You start to ghost people. You start to back out of relationships. People are getting a little too close. People are starting to know the real you. They find out that you're not as special as you made yourself out to be. Your life as you worship the God of reputation is to protect this carefully constructed image of yourself at the altar of your greatness and everything in life Every situation, every relationship, every person is to be manipulated for your own glory. And the painful thing is the God of reputation is an insatiable God. The God of the Bible calls us to be consumed with him. 
False gods also want us to be consumed with them. The problem is, is that when we worship any consuming God outside of the God of the Bible, it destroys us. It leaves us broken. It leaves us exhausted. Yet on the other hand, when we're consumed with God, the end result is life. It's peace. It's freedom. And it's joy. You see, the God of image and the God of reputation will only leave you stressed out and worried and and wound so tightly to make sure that you are this perfectly crafted image for everyone else to see and maybe even fool yourself to think you are. And what it happens is it just, what happens is it leaves you on this relational hamster wheel where you can't stop. You've always gotta be on. You've always gotta be going. You've always gotta be doing something so that everyone can see that you are hashtag goals. So that people can look at you and be like, wow, they have got it all figured out. You see, we're just dropping our toe in the ocean of how exfoliating God's laws are. God's law exfoliates our sin. It shows us how nasty and subtle and tricky and um, nasty sin really is. And sin's major battle is to sever the relationship that you have with God. Sin completely separates you from following God's instructions. Sin completely eliminates your ability to know God as he is calling us to. Our sin causes us to arrogantly follow our own instructions for life apart from God's law like we know the answer to all things. And apart from God's saving grace, what happens is our lives are left with this amalgam of Ikea parts where nothing makes sense. Where we're looking at the world and we're asking those big worldview questions like, who is God? Who am I? What is my goal in life? Why am I here? What happens at death? We ask all these big questions, and somehow we think inside of our own fallen minds, we have the answers to those things. But in the end, what we're left with is emptiness and this piecemealed version of who we think God is, and everything's an absolute mess no hope, no answers, and more frustration. We're only the first four in, and I'm already in myself saying, I wanna jump to Jesus at this point. I need hope. I need hope. And we'll get there, but we just experienced the jab. We're about to get the right hook right now. So we asked, how does God's law bring freedom? And we've seen that God's law frees us to live in relationship with God, but secondly, God's all allows us to live in relationship with others. So after teaching Israel how they are to live with him, their primary relationship we all have is how do we relate to God? God then moves into how do we relate to other people? This is called the horizontal law. So the vertical is the first four with us and God, and the last laws are the horizontal with how we relate to other people. Jesus sums up these horizontal laws saying you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it's always interesting when God does 
the first of things, it's always interesting to see his starting point. So look where God starts with these horizontal laws. He starts with children obeying their parents. Why in the world start here? What God is doing is establishing a pattern of proper submission and leadership that applies not only to parent and child relationships, but to all relationships that we experience in life. What God is doing is he's giving human institutions structure to ensure their health. You see, we are to honor those God has placed over us, assuming they aren't calling us to sin. All right, there's the kicker there. We are to honor those who God has placed over us, assuming they aren't causing us to sin. And then God is assuming that those who are in leadership positions are attempting to lead the way that God leads his people. Now, what does this look like practically? Imagine what message we, we send when our families are structured in a way where children are raised to listen to their parents out of love, out of respect. And imagine what message we would send when parents are leading their children out of love and tenderness. Parents modeling forgiveness and affection and repentance. What it does is it sends this ripple effect throughout the world that both parties are living together with the goal in mind to honor God. Now, for those of you who might, have, might not have kids at this point, you're not off the hook. Think about your workplace. Think about your team. Think about what it would look like if you led your employees with care and justice and grace, not for your profit margin, but for God's glory. What would your workplace look like? For those of you who are on teams, what would your employer think of you if you were the hardest working, most trustworthy, most reliable teammate in your organization, not to get a promotion, not to get a raise, but just to honor God? You see, what happens when God's people start attempting to follow these laws, not to earn God's love, but out of a response to God's love, God has saved me, I want to follow him in the way that he's called me to. We follow these laws out of a response. What it does is it sends shockwaves throughout our spheres of influence. People around you will start to notice that there's something different about you. Why is this workplace different? Why is this team atmosphere different? Why do, you, why do you lead the way that you do? Why do you work so hard? Why do you always get to the kid, your children's hearts when they're, when they're losing control? Why do you lead with repentance? Why are you so fast to forgive? It's in those moments where, you, where instead of worshiping at the altar of self and wanting to one-up everybody, you have the chance to point to the one who sustains and creates and loves us in Jesus. And that's the reason why we do all those things. We have those gospel opportunities right in front of us because these laws reflect God's character. They reflect the God of all creation and he is unlike anything this world has to offer. 
that he is the one thing that we are all chasing after, whether we realize it or not. So from this point, God moves into several negative commands. You shall not, you shall not. And they are, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. What happens when you put all these together? What's the major point? God deeply, deeply cares about human life, and we should too. These last negative commands serve to protect the sanctity of all human life. And as God's people following in God's footsteps, we are to be champions of life. We should be the first to care for other people. We should be the first to promote and build other people up and not tear each other down. God's people care about life. That means that we don't murder because life is precious. Life is a gift. And we're all created in God's image. Even in our fallen state, we reflect God's beauty no matter if there is a deformity, no matter if there is a mental illness, no matter if there is an exceptionality. Life is precious because we are created in his image. We don't commit adultery because we care about our relationships, not just in a marriage, but all of our relationships. We want to be faithful and honest and loving in those. We don't steal because we actually care about people's private property. We want people to have good things. We don't lie and bear false witness because honesty and integrity is bound up in who God is. And we should use our words to give life. But notice God ends this uh, series of negative commands with coveting. We don't use the word coveting a lot, so what in the world is coveting? Coveting is this heart condition that's dissatisfied with what you have from God. It's this selfish desire for something that doesn't belong to you. It's this dissatisfaction with your lot in life and where God has you. And this final heart-focused command is to remind us that all of these laws begin in the heart well before they reach our tongues, well before they work themselves out in our actions. And think about this. You can't be dissatisfied with what you have from God. You can't covet if you are following the first commandment appropriately. They're all bound together. All of these laws are intricately designed and laid out like this steel wall that we try to run head, headlong against and all we do is are crushed by it. Like those crash test dummies in the vehicles. James 2.10 basically is teaching, paraphrasing that if you break one of these, you break all of these because they're all interconnected. So we're in the weeds right now in this. Let's take a step back and let's ask a big question here. Why did these laws come into play after sin entered the world? Why didn't God just give these in the garden when there was no sin? The key to answering this is understanding that these laws never intended to save sinners, but only to expose our sin. Now, here's the paradox in this, though. 
Although these laws reveal our sin to us, these laws are perfect. These laws are beautiful. They reflect the majesty of God, but to sinners like us, all it does is reveal our sin over and over. Paul says in Romans 7, I wouldn't know my sin if it wasn't for the law. Theodore Roosevelt famously said that comparison is the thief of joy, but what these laws are doing is showing us how freedom is found when we compare ourselves to God's holy laws. When we do this, this is the beginning of joy. This is the beginning of peace. These laws reveal how tragically sinful and how desperately needy we are for a savior. And that point right there is the beginning of wisdom. That is the beginning of humility. That is the beginning of true joy, freedom, and peace because as you long for God's mercy, you find that he gives it to you. This is why verses 22 through 26 are so powerful. They're so beautiful. Here in these verses, God is showing Israel that he will allow offerings and sacrifices to be made for the sins of the people when they fail to keep God's law. God's laws constantly are revealing the sins of his people, but we see in this section this, this altar created on this mound of dirt. It's here where these repeated sacrifices would be allowed so that Israel could be close again to God. And on this mound of dirt, this is where God's justice and God's forgiveness would collide. And for centuries, this would look forward to another time in history where God's justice and forgiveness would collide once and for all, for all of eternity. You see, just like this hill of continued forgiveness, Jesus provided perfect and complete forgiveness on a cross on a mound of dirt as well. That mount was called Calvary. And you might be asking, how does Jesus, uh, how was he able to pay for all of our sins? He was a human like us, right? Yes, but he was also God. And because he was also God, he was able to live these laws perfectly, inwardly, and externally, 24-7, in thought, word, and deed, every moment of his life. As then this perfectly righteous person, he could go to the cross to pay for sins because he didn't have to pay for his own. He was the spotless lamb, able to absorb the sins of those who would put their trust in him. He did all this, Paul says in Galatians 3, to redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus lived the life that we should live. And he died the death that we deserve to die. All for breaking these laws constantly. So my question for every one of us here this morning, everybody watching online, you are going to have to answer this question at some point in your life. You are going to have to be square with this question. It's, and it's of eternal significance. What mount is casting a shadow over you this morning? 
as Mount Sinai casting a shadow over you with God's law condemning you constantly in thought, word, and deed, with action and inaction every moment of your life, calling out to you that you are a sinner, that you are imperfect. Is that the mount that's casting a shadow over you this morning? Or is the mount of Calvary through the cross of Jesus casting a shadow over you? Where your sinless savior died, where your faith and trust is resting in him. Where you hear the words that it is finished. Where God has proved to you his love over and over again. That mount of Calvary declares you righteous, forgiven, loved. Mount Sinai declares you guilty. Which mount is casting a shadow over you this morning? If you realize Sinai has a hold on you, trust in Jesus this morning. Cling to him, cling to his life, his death and resurrection for you. You see, because it's through faith alone, the law can't condemn you any longer. God can't try you for the same crime twice. Jesus has paid for your sins. Through faith, the only thing that's left for you is mercy. And here's what happens to God's law, God's 10 commandments at the point you put your trust and faith in Jesus. The law is not some impenetrable force that you are crushed against. God's law then is laid down as your boundary for your life. God's law is the lifestyle of the redeemed for those who trust in Jesus. And you want to follow those laws out of a response for what God has done for you in the person and work for Jesus, of Jesus. And here's even better news. When you fail to follow that lifestyle perfectly, just like Israel coming back to this mount and this altar and and giving their sacrifices, you have the privilege and the access to Jesus again and again to turn and confess and repent and find grace, mercy, and life forever. God's done that for you because he loves you. John Stott tells a story about this leading British humanist who was being interviewed on TV and very candidly, as they were talking, she says this. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. Is that where some of you are this morning? Does some of you feel like you've just sinned too much? that you're too far gone, that you're so entrenched in sin that God could never save someone like you. If you think that, you need to look to Calvary. You need to look at the cross where Jesus came to save sinners. He came to save the sick. He came to save the needy. So when these laws reveal to you your need of a savior, when these laws reveal to you how desperately sinful you are, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ who has covered you by his blood and who tells you you can never out his grace. 
trust in him this morning. Remind yourself of that good news as we continue in 2021. You are forgiven. You are loved in Jesus. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, your law is beautiful and overwhelming, uh, just like you are. Uh, Lord, it's um, in, almost incomprehensible how much you love us, how perfect you are, and the steps that you're willing to go through to save sinners like us. Father, help us rejoice in that good news. Uh, may that set the tone of our lives from today for the rest of our lives. Give us opportunities to share that goodness with other people. Help us to love you more. Help us to love our neighbor better, not to earn your love, but as a response of the great love you've given us in Jesus. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.